Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Probasco. Today, we'll be talking about common misplays and bad habits in vintage, and then a St. Patrick's Day-inspired single-card discussion. I was really the motivation behind this segment here on misplays because uh, I noticed myself, because magic is a game of variance, I think that we often make mistakes when we play that we don't get punished for, and that leads us to continue making those bad mistakes. So I wanted to have a fun discussion about things that we do that are really bad, and we know that we're bad, but we do them anyway. So, I mean, you're not necessarily talking just about making a mistake in a game and misanalyzing and lightning bolting the wrong creature or something. You're no, talking, I, I think that, you do that all the time. That's an error. I mean, right. I think that this is more, this is things that you do that you know are bad, but you do them anyway. So yeah. for instance, like I remember that when we started playing, you all always used to start out every game with turn one lightning bolt of the dome. Yeah, man. Which is really bad. I mean, I still do that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, if you're playing Burn, maybe, but if you're playing a deck where Lightning Bolt is a control element, you do not want to start your games with turn one Lightning Bolt to the dome. I think pretty much in every deck, Lightning Bolt is a control element. And I know I was talking to Jerry Yang at GP Flash, actually, and he was playing Burn and I was playing Fish, and I was like, well, don't I win this matchup because I, I just out-control you? And he's like, how many creatures do you have? And I'm like, 20. He's like... I have 40 burn spells. <laughs> and then I realized, like, yeah, your burn deck is actually the control deck in this matchup. Cool. Oh, that's cool. But, I mean, we weren't playing against each other. It was just an educational moment for me. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, that, that's a perfect example. So I'll start off here because the one that I consistently do that I constantly tell myself is awful is... uh I will be sideboarding, and I can't decide what to take out. And ever since they changed the rules, and you can have a deck of more than 60 cards after sideboarding, I'll just go in with, like, 62 or 63 cards, because I don't want to go through and figure out those last two or three to cut. Do you adjust your mana to compensate? No. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, that's strictly bad, because, I mean, we talk about how some people, like, make 61 card decks and they insist that you can't make a cut or whatever and we say that that is wrong that obviously you want to maximize your chances of drawing the best cards therefore 60 card decks are the best and then i just don't do that post sideboard i think the common logic is that this is even more sure in vintage right because you're not just because you have these restricted cards right yeah there's no way the 61st through 63rd card in your deck post-board, they're not on the same level as Lotus and Ancestral. Your, your 61st card isn't better than Ancestral Recall. Yeah. Right, right. And I've heard I've heard people say that, like, playing a 61-card deck where the 61st card is a singleton increases your chances of drawing that more. Like, the, the benefit of having access to that one particular card that would be the card that you would cut is more important than drawing everything else, like a sure. fraction of a chance more likely. Yeah. I'm explaining this terribly, but... <laughs> no, I, yeah, I get it, because if, you, if you're, the one card that you've left in is like Nihil Spellbomb or something like that, and 
Yeah. You know, Niall Spellbomb is going to be useful in some cases, and otherwise you won't have it. I mean, putting it in there is going to... Wouldn't you be better off if you just cut one of your other cards, is what uh, I would say, and then I just don't. I, I mean, Magic is a complicated game, right? There's got to be right. some situation in which a 61-card deck is right, and it's more likely in, like, Standard or a 41-card deck in Limited, but, like, those situations are so rare, and the amount of math you would need to do to figure out that it's actually <laughs> the case, like, nobody does that. Right. They just, they can't make the decision. And, yeah. and even if there is a situation, if we're talking about a time where taking stuff out of your sideboard and you can't make your decision like that that doesn't happen to be the right situation for a 63 card deck right <laughs> this is a subset of something that everybody does myself included everybody does it which is the larger mistake of you didn't know your sideboard plan before the tournament started right uh, i don't think i ever know my sideboard <laughs> plan before the tournament starts i mean yeah i mean most people don't and, and there's always going to be some matchup that you never you know you didn't test because because why would you some crazy uh, off oddball matchup but like in theory, if you're, if you're really preparing for a tournament, you should know. Oh, it's a shop stack. I knew that was going to be there. I knew what I was going to take out, but it happens to me all the time. I'll do something that I think is just as bad, which is instead of going to see three cards, I'll just take out a bunch of, I'll take out like the fourth of a bunch of cards. <laughs> like if I'm playing shops, I'll be like, well, I don't know what to board out. So I'll board out one Tangle Wire and one Thorn of Amethyst. Right. And one. Just to make room so. with that, the three of everything. That's Interesting. Not, which is I, also wrong. <laughs> Right. But, but yeah, when you're in the moment, you're just, I don't know what to do. Yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of what it comes down to is that all the probability numbers that come into everything are, really, as you said, really complex. And it's hard to hard to figure them out on the fly. And sometimes it comes down to where you need to make a decision so that you can actually start game two at some point. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think taking out the fourth card here and there in three minutes is, is probably fine. And it's just one game. I mean, that could go either way. It could be absolutely correct, or you might lose anyway. Or you might... That's the thing, is that you don't know if the decisions you made were proper, because it could have no bearing on the result at all. Right. Well, that's a good point, because if I win game one, I'm more likely to make some sketchy sideboard decision than if I lose game one. Is that because you feel like you have, you're ahead, therefore you can be riskier? Right. I'm like, oh, this is a game three, so, you know, let's try this out. I mean, maybe that's a mistake, and maybe that's just loose play style. Hmm. Yeah. I've definitely done that. I definitely have heard other people doing that. I think it's a pretty common mindset to have. I hear that more with regard to mulligans than with sideboarding, though. I mean, I, I, I feel like people tend to keep sketchier hands in game two if they've won game one, thinking... Well, if this hand is risky, but if it works out, it'll be fine, and, it, it, and then I'll get game two. And if I don't, then I have game three to fall back on. Yep. And it's a, a hedge against, you know, going down to six or five cards or whatever, just to keep seven and, and have a full grip. This is where I think it's interesting that we're sort of talking about uh, mistakes, but sort of like habits, because. Yeah. When you're in a tournament and you don't know how to sideboard and you leave in 63 cards, yeah, it's probably a mistake, but it's less of a mistake than letting your five minutes to sideboard run out and just walking away from the tournament, right? Like you have to make a decision. <laughs> or not sideboarding at all. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But at some point, if you're consistently making this mistake, then it's a habit, right? Then it's like, uh, maybe I should have just figured this out. <laughs> maybe I should have figured it out last time. But like yeah. Jeff was saying, it's, Vintage kind of, uh, maybe you bring in that 63rd card and you win off that 63rd card because it's vintage, so it's some overpowered card. Doesn't mean it's right, but you can get rewarded for mistakes. 
was not knowing what your sideboard plan is actually on your list of bad habits, Andy? It was not. Well, I think it was like pretty far down the list. So, so that was mine. And then we want to get through all 12 of these. So Andy, what was on your list? Sure. Uh, so my number one or the, or the first one I have is, um, a general poor play when I'm in a leading position. So if I'm neck and neck or if I'm behind or if I'm a little bit ahead or behind, I'll play generally fine. But if I, if I play like a turn one library in a control deck or I'm just, I'm just, Outdrawing. If I have like five more cards in my hand than my opponent, I just play sloppy. Hmm. Oh. It's vintage, right? So I feel very comfortable, but how many times have you seen someone in vintage beat somebody who had five more cards than them? Right? right. There are, there are cards in vintage that draw more than five cards. You don't have seven of them in your deck, but they they exist. So when I'm in a situation that's like way ahead, I get pretty complacent pretty fast. And I just sort of, I don't play those. I don't know how to say, like, decision-heavy. Like, if I have, like, a nutso hand that is, like, I have a library in play and I have a demonic and a draw spell and a few other things, I don't think as long about those decisions as I should, right? I think, well, I'm ahead, I'll just make the first decent play that comes to me instead of thinking, no, don't make a good play, make the best play. Hmm. I don't, uh, that part of my brain kind of shuts off. Do you have an example? I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but it's, I mean... For me, it happens the most with library. Okay. If, um, if I have a library out and I have a very good hand, this is the example that's popped in my head. It, it definitely happens for other things, so I draw a bunch of cards, but I don't just uh, go for a kill with Demonic. I just say, well, if this game keeps going, I'm going to keep drawing cards. I'm going to keep doing better, so I'll just, you know, get a few counters. Right. Um, or, or just, like, sit on this advantage. Yeah. And this ties in really well with how Jeff opened this, because most of the time you don't get punished for that, because we're talking about a subset of games where you're already way ahead. Right. Let's be serious. If you're way ahead, you're going to win most of those games. 90% of the games yeah. you're going to win, even if you make even mistakes. Even if you play terribly. Uh, but I've definitely lost games where I just thought there was no chance I could win, so I just was like, I've definitely even been in a situation where like, I had in my head the mindset of, well, I'm really beating this guy, and I don't want to like embarrass him. <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, <laughs> I don't want to just like run all over this. I'm just like, I'm not going to make this big like masturbatory combo turn or something. I'll just like, I'm already going to win. I'll just play my cards and like, and, and not worry about this. I don't want to, I don't want to spend, be a and monopolize all the time thinking when, you know, I'm so far ahead. Cause, right. cause you get annoyed when opponents do that, when like your combo point is going off and you have no cards in hand, but they don't, or, or no counters, but they don't know that. So they're taking like 10 extra minutes to play around counters that you don't have. Right. And you're getting frustrated. Like, I don't want to be that guy. I've, I've lost games from that situation before. You're not like Jerry when he, he played against some kid in his first vintage event and directed oh, him on turn one and then high-fived him and killed him without taking anything out of his hand? <laughs> well, wasn't the kid playing elves? Like, could he take anything with the rest? I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about the, the Brassman situation, and I, I think actually that comes up for me when I'm playing, like, aggro control decks. If I sort of have the board on lockdown and it's like, it's going to take me two or three turns to attack with my little 2-2 guys or whatever and actually finish my opponent, I'll often rush those turns without necessarily adding more pressure to the board or, you know, figuring out what potential holes there are that my opponent could exploit. And like, I know that my my turns speed up and I just sort of get sloppy. Like, I'll, I'll stop keeping track of life totals as well and if I duress or something, I might not take the extra time to write down what cards are in the hand or anything like that. I'm just trying to accelerate through the end of the game. I was thinking about this example, too. It's sort of like watching a basketball game where you can see the actual tempo of the game 
both teams playing up and down the field or up and down the, the floor, one team's play can affect the others because they're sort of forcing you to play fast or forcing you to play slow. And I don't think that happens as much in vintage against a good opponent or it doesn't happen as much in magic against a good opponent because they will take their own time as they need to. I mean, there's not a clock to be ruled by necessarily other than the whole round clock. So it's not like you can force someone to play faster just because you're playing faster. Like you can't goad them into a mistake by rushing things. There's this fantastic piece of magic advice. I don't remember where I heard it from, if I heard it from a player or read it from an article, but it's basically just this like, core rule of thumb which is if you're losing a game the only thing you should be thinking about is what is the thing that could happen that results in me winning i think a lot of people do this right like i only that's tiny tiny you know snowball's chance to to win this game how do i make that happen but if you're winning if you're ahead you should be thinking the exact opposite what is the one thing that could cause me to lose this game right and just like cutting off those options and i'm, I'm fine with the first i could definitely be better at the second Sure. Yeah, that's interesting because you know, I've I've definitely heard like play to your outs, right? Even if you're a really small percentage to win, maybe there's one card in your deck that you can get, and I, you know, I've always thought about that, but I've never thought about the the opposite of that. But, and you have to, right? It's if, yeah. if your opponent is playing to their outs, then you need to play against their outs. Yep. But when you're ahead, it's easy it's easy not to worry about that stuff, right? Because you just think you're gonna win. Wisdom. Now who's next? Matt. Me. Yeah. Oh. oh, I make no mistakes. <laughs> um, no, I, Why are you guys talking about this? I, I had had a couple, and I, I think the big one for me is not going for a win when I have the opportunity to. Sort of relates to what Andy was talking about, but instead of being ahead and you know not playing sharply, it's it's more like it more often happens to me after like my opponent and I have had a big a big struggle back and forth. We've sort of both exhausted our hands, both maybe in top deck mode or whatever. It'll sort of come up that I'll I'll have the opportunity either to go for more control or go for an actual win, like you know, tutor for tinker or something like that. Uh, there are a lot of times where I will go for the control play and lose because of it. You you get the wrong piece of control against the the actual threat that they draw or whatever. Um, yeah, I actually have a have an example from a particular match where um. Like my opponent and I had both struggled back and forth. We'd done a lot of, uh, a lot of things. My, my hand started out as being very heavy control. And at this, at the point in the game that I'm coming to, like I was out of force of wills. Like I didn't, I could not play a control role anymore. And like his hand was pretty much empty or, or I knew what was in it and it wasn't relevant. And I played a merchant scroll and I saw one play in my head and I went for a completely different play and I could have played Merchant Scroll for Mystical Tutor for Yawgmoth's Will and, and won the game with Yawgmoth's Will. Instead, I played Merchant Scroll for Repeal and just straight up lost the game. Like, I just threw it away. Ouch. It was pretty bad. It's that sort of thing where you, you, you we've talked about it before, like, the cards in Vintage are very powerful and there's a lot of opportunities for you to just go get one of them and just outright win the game. I mean, whether it's getting Tinker, getting Yagmas Will, or getting the other half of Vault Key, or tutoring for your actual Tinker bot and putting it into play, like, <laughs> hard casting it. I mean, like, you know, these are all options that can happen if the game has gone long and you need to win yeah, the game. Yeah, it's so easy to lose track of just, like, you get so caught up in fighting with your opponent that you forget about the fact that 
you could just end this. Right. That's a great example of a vintage specific habit. So right. anyone watching the podcast who plays a lot of non-vintage formats, but is, is learning vintage or, or getting more into vintage, that's true in every format, yeah. but people don't realize how true it is in vintage because the control decks can win on turn one. And if you're like a really great legacy control player or, or standard control player, you'll play a vintage control deck really well, but you will miss times when you could have won because you're just not looking for them, right? You just, you're not used to that. A formative moment for me was, uh, as a young vintage player, one of the, one of the earlier decks I, I actually did okay with was this, uh, Psychotog control deck. Mm-hmm. It's really popular in 2003 or something, but it's just all just a deck full of draw spells and counters and like two psychotogs. And I played that deck for a long time. And then just like for fun, I decided to play combo for a few events, which I never played at storm combo. And, uh, you know, at first I was terrible and then I was learning and then I was getting a little better at it. And I, I realized, you know, I, I, I was killing somebody on turn two with, with the combo deck. And I suddenly like clicked that like every card I had played was in my control deck. And like I had killed the person on turn two, but it wasn't like, this wasn't like rituals. It was just like, ah, like DT for Lotus and then like play Ancestral into this and like Yawkwell. And if I had just had a Psychotog in my hand instead of a Tender's Wagoning, I would have easily just won <laughs> on turn two with any deck. And you don't see those hands until you play a deck where all you're doing is looking for those hands. Right. Now you don't always have dark rituals in your control deck and vintage, but you do have a lot of broken cards and you don't, you got to look for that. Right? Yeah. It's not necessarily a combo. It's, you know, maybe you just need to be attacking more. But uh, if you're not looking for, you know, in which case maybe you should play aggro for a bit and see, like, how you can tempo somebody out with the right kind of hands. Sometimes it's really hard to figure out when to switch that role, you know, when to go from your foot on the gas, your foot on the brake, I guess. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe not for everyone, but certainly for me. Now we're getting back to who's the beat down again. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the core question of the magic, right? Yeah. yeah. So, JC, what do you do wrong? What do you do wrong? <laughs> I think one of my biggest mistakes that I run into all the time, kind of embarrassing, but I tend to not read all the words on my magic cards. <laughs> and sometimes that doesn't really work out for me. I mean, um tell me you have examples. Oh, yeah. So yeah. There's, there's, there's some cards where you know, I'm like, oh, well, this death mark, that can't be a sorcery. That's got to be an instant. That card's terrible That's as a sorcery or whatever. So I've cast some instant speed death marks, and it's pretty good as an instant. Um, do, do you get called on your instant speed death marks? Yeah, so I I play, I pretty much only play with uh, my friend Lucas anymore. And, you know, we've kind of regressed to playing a lot of just type four and battle box. And all the time, he's like, that card doesn't do what you expect it to do. <laughs> Um, I think another good example was when Dragon's Breath Oath was a deck. Yeah. I used the Mother of Runes to give my opponent's creature protection from red so the Dragon's Breath would fall off, and he let it fall off, and I don't know if I won or lost, but the next day Jimmy McCarthy was like, that card does not do that. <laughs> Is it, that because... It, it can't target an opponent's creature, that's right? Yep. Yeah, okay. Oh, Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. And it comes up with like the less frequently played cards, you know, I mean, sure. Demonic Tutor, that's pretty easy. Ancestral Recall, that's pretty easy. But, you know, as decks become more or less popular and sideboard strategies change, you end up playing some more of these fringe cards and understanding exactly what they do and all the little nuanced interactions with 
the existing cards in the format. I mean, that's been a challenge for me. And also, you know, I just don't play as much Magic as I probably should or used to. So, I mean, that causes that hindrance as well. No, I think that Nat would attest to the number of times when you're playing Belcher, you can kill your opponent's creatures with uh, the second ability on Tinderwall because it's a very <laughs> well-kept secret. Yeah, nobody knows yep. about that one. I actually, I run, in, I run into the situation playing Belcher too because I realize that a lot of my opponents don't actually know what their counter spells do. I have people who will save Flusterstorms for Belcher. And it's like, nope, <laughs> sorry. That's pleasant. You can read your card, and I'm going to activate this and... <laughs> Just go ahead and kill you. And I, I've seen people cast tendrils and target, you know, I cast tendrils for eight storm and I kill these two creatures. Oh, yeah. Four damage. <laughs> Man, that, that would be such a good card if tendrils actually target <laughs> yeah, creatures. Yeah, that would be ridiculous. When you think you know what a card does, right? When you basically right. get what a card does. Yeah. It's a little complicated and, and the side thing never comes up. I think it's really common with new players to, like brand new players, to not read cards, period. If you watch somebody learn magic for the first time, you know, you play a spell that has some, like you play a prodigal sorcerer, they're going to play an X one. They're not going to read your cards when you play them. Cause they're, mm-hmm. I think part of it is people are, I don't know, embarrassed, right? To not know what the card does. So it's like, all right, I'll, I'll read it when it, when it comes up. And that's definitely too late. Yeah. yeah. And when you become more experienced, you sort of do that at this other level where, if you're pretty sure you know what a card does, you're not going to ask. If you've never seen the card before, you ask what it does, you read all the words, you're really careful about it. If you've seen it a dozen times, you're, and you think you're like, I'm pretty sure I know what that does. Yeah. And then it's vintage. So you read the card and then you realize that the actual, <laughs> like, what the card does is nothing of what it's the card actually 15 says. years out of date. Yeah. Uh, years ago, this was before Time Vault did what it does now. This was when Time Vault combined with Flame Fuselade. Uh, but I had a Time Vault proxy, and the text of the proxy was, uh, when Time Vault comes to play, call a judge. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to play this card, and you're not going to believe what it says. Like, I'm going to explain <laughs> some weird <laughs> to you. Like, it has something to do with turns. It's not going to happen. I'm just going to untap it a million times and kill you. But you nice. shouldn't believe anyone who tells you that, right? Like, if you're in a tournament, you shouldn't believe that kind of thing. So just yeah. call the judge now. Just get it over with. I do have to say, uh, related to uh, Judge's first story, there was a time in Vintage History many years ago where I played a deck, I think it was a Psychotag deck, with Cunning Wish, and your sideboard has all these instants that you Cunning Wish for, and I ran the card Dry Spell, which is a sorcery, sure, it's, a black, it's a black and a colorless, to deal one damage to each creature and player. Because at the time, there actually That's wasn't from a Homelands, man. That's from <laughs> Homelands. There wasn't a better way... To kill a bunch of X ones. Wow. At the time, well, there was because it wasn't actually a real card. I thought it was an instant. I thought you could cutting wish for it, but not only did <laughs> I run it in my cyborg to cutting wish for it, I didn't actually own a dry spell, so I proxied the card oh, and wrote no. instant on it, which is like you about have. as bad as you can get for a cheat. Like that is, like, <laughs> I've never even heard of anyone doing that cheat. Like on purpose, where they just make up a card and run it in vintage. <laughs> wow. Say, ah, I think Lightning Vault deals four damage, and you're not going to know. <laughs> <laughs> take four. So if you learn nothing else from this podcast, you can take that with you and in your next proxy event. <laughs> the most savage cheat ever. Yeah. I, I mean, like nobody knew, right? It was, a, it was this Homelands Uncommon. Yep. Four to five vintage players probably don't know what Dry Spell does off the top of their head now. 
And if you said it's like a, a dead fish on the artwork, sure does. Yeah. does. But if you like, we're pretty sure it was a two mana sorcery that dealt one damage. Your opponent was like, no, it's an instant. You wouldn't like call the judge on that. You'd be like, well, maybe I forgot what this homelands card did. Yeah, I'd be like, there's no, there's no way this guy would put a sorcery in here and get it with cunning wish. <laughs> It's Andy Probasco. I assume he knows what he's talking yeah, about. That devious. Yeah. <laughs> it's like people uh, playing Merchant Scroll for sorceries, too. Like playing Merchant Scroll for Tinker or Time Walk. Yeah. yeah. That happens a lot, especially mm-hmm. with new players. They don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know of anyone who's done that like on purpose, but you could. Somebody could get away with that. I mean, I think Juan Rodriguez did it on purpose, but I think he also was joking. I mean, he already conceded the match. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of things to get with Merchant Scroll, I have, I don't know which of these is, is worse, but, uh, playing Time Walk to cycle it and not holding Ancestral, basically just like misplaying the blue power. And I think that this is something that Brassman and I were talking about, whether cycling Time Walk is actually bad and it sort of depends on what you want to get out of it. Yeah. Like sometimes playing Time Walk as an explorer is actually really pretty good. Like against shops. Yeah, it's good against shops. Time Walk as an explorer is great. It's especially good against shops if you have Mana Drain in your deck and you need to get that second source into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm on the fence on that one, but I still feel bad every time that I do it. And similarly, when I just, like, main phase throw an Ancestral out there, or even at the end of my opponent's turn, I I mean, it feels so much better when you wait and you throw it on a full stack. But sometimes, (laughs) if you wait to throw it on a full stack, you end up just dying before that comes. Yeah, And and you're also giving your opponent more outs to draw the cards you're afraid of. Yeah. Three more draw steps to get that mental misstep. This actually is pretty much one of mine, too. I think that you have a lot of players just sort of jump the gun on a lot of plays. Those can be big ones, Ancestral and Time Lock, but I mean, like, I've seen people ruin themselves with Brainstorm. Even smaller things like putting a fetch land into play and cracking it immediately just to get the land. Like, you get that a lot, where, especially where people are like, oh, I'm thinning my deck. And it's like, no, you're, you're barely doing that. <laughs> no, you're right? Some people are really convinced by deck thinning, though. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> it feels really bad to not make any plays when you have plays, right? right? It doesn't feel good. It is sometimes, perhaps often, the right play, right? but it's tough to do that. It's tough to even see that as an option. I think it wouldn't be hard to, like, show, like, a board state, to, like, a complicated board state to a player that has, like, a lightning bolt and a, you know, and a cantrip or something, like, like a series of cards in hand. It'd be like, hey, like, what are your options? How many different things you could do? Yeah. And, like, nobody would ever say... Like you don't you don't process in your head past the, past turn, the turn. In an actual tournament situation, you might, but you want to play. You know, you're there to play cards, right? You want to play cards, right? Right. I guess that's what's so hard is just like the allure of getting that power out there and getting a big swing out of it yeah. is more than just sitting on it. I know it comes down a lot to um, what your deck is trying to do too. I was playing against Sam Crollo in a. I think we were just testing at the time, but he was testing Landstill. I don't remember what I was playing. I think I was, uh, it was recent and I think it was when gifts had just been unrestricted and I was playing with four gifts. He threw out an end of turn ancestral and just straight up lost because of it. Like we had this huge instant <laughs> war on the stack with his ancestral at the bottom of the stack and I resolved a gifts and a dig through time or something like that. I mean, it was blowout city. Yeah, it was just bad for him. Like we had both been sitting there doing nothing and he blinked and lost. But I mean, that's sort of, you know, I mean, he's the control deck. Like, he should never, with few exceptions, he should not be the, the leader in any action on that. And 
it was funny how it happened because I think I told him he played it, and I think I was like, "You lose." <laughs> <laughs> really, when I was playing Landstill, that's when I first started really trying to to play that way with right. holding ancestral until the last possible moment that I felt I could get away with it. And I felt really good at the time. I guess maybe I'm playing more aggressive decks now, and maybe I do want to run it out there. It's just... I I don't know in which direction this changed it, but, like, from the time when I, like, started getting good at Vintage to now, it's so different. Mm. Misstep. Yeah, it's true. so different. Like, if so many people are playing Misstep, you're just giving them the chance to pick it up. And Spell Pierce and Flusterstorm are similar. Like, they're just... It was a totally valid line of play to play Ancestral, specifically because your opponent didn't have double blue up. So like now's like now's your edge. If it gets forced, it gets forced, who cares? But like if your opponent has a misstep. Oh no. Yeah, I mean misdirection was was a big deal, so you'd have to you have to make specific plays around that. But misstep is sort of this other thing where if they're running missteps, it becomes this complicated balance question of the sooner you play it, the less likely they are to have a misstep. But the longer you wait, the more likely you are to draw something that answers misstep. Mm-hmm. But they're also more likely to draw something that stops your answer to misstep. Right. So yeah. the question is like, as this game continues, which player gets more likely to stop an ancestral? Which is different for every matchup. How do you feel about time walk then? I have no idea. I play it pretty <laughs> early. I'll play it just on turn two, sometimes without even a second land in hand. And I know it is so much better. It's I feel like this is something you can reason out. Like, some things in Magic you can't reason out, you just have to test. But I feel like it's very, like, yes, if you waited three turns till you had, like, a young Pyromancer out, and then you play Time Walk, the Time Walk will get better. But if you Time Walk now, you get the Pyromancer out a turn earlier. So the turn you would have Time Walked, you're still getting that attack off. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, it's tricky, right? Like, the the real advantage of Time Walk is being able to take two turns next to each other. Right. Not being able to take an extra turn early. But, like, that's the advantage of waiting. That's a good point, because I, I was thinking about that, too, specific to Time Walk, is, like, how good is Time Walk in your deck? Because, you know, like you said, Young Power Mancer or Mentor, Time Walk is probably one of the best cards. Yeah. Yeah. But in Storm Combo, some people don't even run it. Yeah. That's sort of what I was going to say, too, is that it matters a lot what you're playing there, too, because Time Walk is a lot better in pyromancer deck whenever you play it because you're already trying to take more turns effectively than your opponent like whether you're countering their stuff and setting it back or just progressing your game plan with the pyromancer in play or whatever but like in a bigger mana deck you want to play a time walk where you're going to take two big turns in a row you know hopefully one of them will win you the game right so you don't necessarily get that sort of leverage late game with pyromancer because you're always doing the same thing who was up next I said both of mine, so I think that who wants to take the next shot? I would second last time so I can go again. Sure. So uh, I have one, and this is true for different reasons, on uh, Magic Online and in paper tournaments. I sort of had bad time management skills, (laughs) specifically because I, this is more true in paper, I get uh, chatty with my opponents. Oh. I like being friendly with my opponent. I like talking about the cards we're playing. I like talking to people next to me. Now, if it's champs or the top eight of a tournament, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to be having a casual conversation when I'm, like, really, like, focused. But if it's, like, round one in a 20, 30-person tournament and I'm surrounded by people I know, I'm going to be cracking jokes about the deck I'm playing, the deck my opponent's playing, the deck my friends are playing. And I would say... You know, four times out of five, this is good. 
everyone has a good time as far as I know, but I don't really change that behavior if the match is taking longer than it should. Hmm. So I have definitely gone to time in matches where I was not playing slowly. I don't want to say my opponent was playing like glacially slowly, probably playing more slow than I am. You know, I've gone to time in a match where while I was sideboarding, I was having a conversation with someone when I could have been starting the game. <laughs> it's weird because it's it's like a bad habit is like being friendly, but I have been knocked out of tournaments because of this. It's not frequent, but it should never happen. I feel like I have a similar problem with being really casual and chatty, and I find that I play terribly while I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I'll just not make correct plays. I'll just pass the turn instead of making the obviously correct play because I just wasn't paying enough attention to the game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The most extreme example of this is like I have, and it's tough because this is borderline a bad habit and borderline like being a good guy, but like I've given my opponent advice. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that happens all the time. If my opponent asks me a rules question, I'm going to give them the answer and then I'm going to like how a judge just has to give you the answer, but it can't say, and then that's why you wouldn't want to play the lightning bolt on that turn, because it would survive because of state-based effects, you know, but I'll just say it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, but if you, if you played it, it, your bolt wouldn't kill it, so whatever. I guess I have, this, <laughs> I have this, like, mindset of, like, like if you're playtesting with someone, you would never want to win a game based on, like, a rules lawyering situation, because that doesn't make you a, a better player. But if it's a tournament, that is what results in the end of the game, right? At some point, I'm not saying it's a bad habit not to rules lawyer my opponent, but like I don't need to go out of my way to make them not make a mistake. Yeah, that's sort of an entirely different discussion as to like <laughs> where the line is of upholding proper gameplay and just being a. D- <laughs> well, I think there was at the side event in Cleveland, I think Jeff, you were playing against someone and they cast a tutor, it did something and you were like, "Well, why don't you get this card and just kill me?" And the judge was right there and you're like, "You can get this card and kill me." And he was like, "All right." And I think you blew the judge's mind. <laughs> <laughs> did I do that? I I that sounds like something I would do, yeah, that but I don't like remember. It. In in the right tournament environment like that's awesome, right? Yeah. Like if there's not much on the line and you're just like, it's somebody new to the format or whatever, and like, that's great. But right. <laughs> it's sort of like a time and a place. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it depends on where and how you're playing. Like in the top eight of a tournament, like it's very different from playing in the, the bottom three tables of a tournament. And it's different playing in a 20 person event versus playing. Andy would never find event. himself at the bottom three tables of a tournament. That's all I, I would have dropped. <laughs> <laughs> the chatting to eat up time, even if your opponent is playing slower than you, you're still eating up your opponent's time. Like, I've never felt like yeah. more of a dick than when the entire game I'm, like, showboating to my friends. And then we go to time, and maybe I play faster than my opponent, but, like, I still ate up the clock, and maybe this draws good for me, maybe this draws good for my opponent, I don't know. But, like, it, it shouldn't have come to that, it didn't have to come to that if I was paying more attention to how much time there was. As a thing that only affects me and not my opponent, it's compounded by the fact that, like, I am not good at, and no, I don't really know anyone who's good at this. Most people are really bad at this, like, calling a judge when your opponent's taking too long. Like, oh, yeah. Very rare. Like, you should do that. That is what yeah, a good yes. player does, but it is very rare for a player to do that. 
you can't just do it when there's 10 minutes left in the match. It's too late. You need to, you need to identify it early and bring the judge over. And it's not going to stop when that happens because the judge comes over and watches and says, well, it doesn't look like he's playing low than he leaves. And then the person press start playing slow again. And this is not your opponent cheating. You know, this is not like accusing the person of cheating that feels like that. Yeah. But you have to, if you are super serious about, <laughs> if you're 100%, but not a thousand percent serious about like winning vintage tournaments, this is, you know, it's something you have to do, and uh, I'm awful at it. Most people are bad at that. Uh, Bringing up draws is interesting because, I, you know, I feel like draws shouldn't really exist. You know, like if you get a draw, you or your opponent did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And there are no draws on Magic Online. This is one of the things I like about it. I don't feel like it's necessary that you or your opponent did something wrong, but, I mean, I, I feel like... I mean, the alternative is that... The alternative is, like, such a gray area, right? Because the alternative is that you or your opponent did something right. 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 Like, that's, how bad is that? I mean, there's, like, the, the classic situation where, like, you're up a game, you're going, you're in, going into game, you're up a game, game one took 40 minutes, you go to game two, you sideboard out all your win conditions, you board in control cards, and this is 100% legal, but right. if for one quarter of a second in that match, you hesitate, when you don't have to hesitate, suddenly you're cheating. <laughs> right? It's no longer legal, that is just cheating, and you have to figure out yourself and even if you'll never get caught for it, that's like a personal thing you have to figure out yourself. Like, did you really need to think that long about that decision? Yes. Like, it's tough. And, and it's an ugly area of the game that in Magic Online is just not ugly. It doesn't have to be, but in paper, it's always going to have to be that way because there's no way they can ever, they're never going to put a chess clock in Magic. It wouldn't be good if they did. They can't do that. Yeah, I think, Nat, was that you and I that tried to do that? Do what? Try to play with a chess clock? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever tried it. I tried to do it with someone, and it was it was just a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I think you could do it with like a friend, but both players need to be perfectly comfortable with the rules. Yeah, it seems really complicated to actually pass priority and use a clock. I mean, right, like, passing priority is so difficult. Right. Yeah, if your opponent isn't a hundred percent on board with exactly how you pass priority in every circumstance, like you're just gonna have to call a judge over five minutes. Ah, timing. Matt, what would be one of your other bad habits? I think we sort of got into it a little bit with the um, jumping the gun on Ancestral sure. or Time Walk. Actually, Gush and Brainstorm, too. Like, Gush and Brainstorm, to me, are actually sorceries. But I don't know. I really love the end-of-turn Gush. Yeah, I, I like to do that, too, but I like to pay mana for that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I may never have alternate cast cost Gush end-of-turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But I, I think, so, getting off that topic, since we already talked about it a little bit, I think... The other bad habit I think that I have or that I've seen sometimes is that uh, people aren't actually conscious of what their opponent is trying to do <laughs> in the sense that, like, if you're playing against shops, for example, and you you keep a really good hand that would be great against blue, but I think that this happens a lot in local tournaments where you sort of know all the players and you sort of can guess with some certainty what they're going to be playing. I mean, like, if you keep a hand against Namtran that has misdirection in it, you're probably making a mistake. Mm-hmm. I had a guy who, I played against him several times. He lived in Pittsburgh and he was playing mono red shops a lot. And like, I would play against him with Belter and every time he would open it with Magus of the Moon against me. And it was like, cool. <laughs> that does absolutely nothing. You have so many better options in your deck and yet you consistently open with Magus of the Moon. So I think you know, that sort of thing where it's just like you, you have a line of play that you're, you know, you're going to be taking, 
because that's how your hand plays out. And it's just because of your opponent, you know that's not going to work. Do you think you make that mistake or you just see other people doing it? I, I mean, I guess I see other people doing it more often. I mean, I've, you know, I'm sure that there's been times when maybe I knew, I think in a lot of times it would be with Storm. Like I should suspect someone of being on Storm, but I keep a hand that, you know, doesn't have control cards in it or doesn't, won't be able to actually stop Storm. Like, uh, something like that. It's just not taking into account what my opponent will likely be doing. I think we're talking about like in play mistakes, and that's definitely in play mistake. But this is that's like a really common like deck building mistake. Yeah. Just this general philosophy of it's easy to look at Magic and be like, oh, there are good decks, and then <laughs> when you play against a deck that you don't expect, you have to metagame to beat that deck. But that's not like the game is the metagame. Uh, like, if your deck isn't good against the deck you're playing against, it's not good. Right. Blue versus Shops is one game, and Blue versus Storm is a different game. And you have to play with the same cards in both of those games, but they're not, they don't have the same rules. It's easy to forget that. Right. Especially when you're really, when you feel like your deck is very clever. That's, that's like, with that, I, I'm usually fine with that, but that's, that's when it gets me the most is when I feel like my deck should be the best deck and it should be, this hand should be great because it's got all the cards that I built my deck to draw. Mm. It doesn't matter if my opponent's game plan is just null rot every game. You know, it doesn't matter. I, I gotta think differently. That's a funny thing to bring up because I didn't think of this, but, and this sort of goes back to what Nat was talking about, about just winning, doing things that are clever or cute mm. versus winning. And we talk about this in deck construction of whenever someone says that's cute, yeah. that's not a compliment to whatever <laughs> idea someone just brought up. But the same thing occurs in playing out a game where you execute more complicated strategies because it's exciting to do so sure. when something else would have done it easier and better. I'll get, I'll get really proud of myself if I understand like a complicated set of rules. <laughs> like if, if I know that there's this corner case interaction and I'm playing the game and like the cards that set up that interaction like start showing up that happen to be in play i'm like getting excited i'm like i really hope the game moves to a state <laughs> in which this is the right play and if it does that's great but if it doesn't i'm always tempted to sort of push things in that direction i i, I know one example is like i just remember a tournament where and i didn't i don't think i lost this game so it's not a great example but like uh i was playing a tournament once and i saw this was a weird deck but i had a, a divining top and a voltaic key and i had a repeal in my hand <laughs> so I like tapped to draw. I like my opponent was like not very experienced with the vintage either, which made this just so much more fun. It was like, hold on, I'm gonna tap to my top to draw it. In response, I'm gonna untap it. But then before the ability resolves, I'm gonna tap it again. But then in response to that, I'm gonna play repeal, bouncing the top. So I'm gonna end up with three cards in my hand and a divining top, and then I'm gonna replay the top. And there's a judge, like, just happened to be standing right next to me. And it's like a, like a level one. And he's just looking over and you can tell he's like thinking for a while. He's like, ah, he's like doing math. And he's like, that does work. It totally <laughs> does work. And, like, and I'm like so excited that you can do this. And I don't think I lost this game. I don't remember, but like, it took me like five or six mana to do this. And I could have just like repealed one of the creatures he was attacking me with. I just, <laughs> just put a good card on top of my deck with top. That yep. would have been just as good. If yep. not better. But once you know you can do this stuff, you're like, ah, that edge case is going to happen, and then I'm really going to be the brilliant guy who knew about that. I spent a long time of a legacy tournament trying to Golgari charm one of my Mitra's factories um, that was getting wastelanded, and it never happened. 
<laughs> what does Golgari Charm do in that case? It regenerates my creature. Uh, <laughs> my animated factory. Savage. Never happened. But that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> so, like, if you if you have that stuff in hand, like, I can totally see. Like, my opponent's on Wasteland. I have Golgari Charm. And then your opponent plays something where it would be good to play Golgari Charm in your spots. But you're like, well, I could use this on a Wasteland later. I just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I have definitely done that before. Not specifically that, but very similar things. I kind of imagine that's how it would be when people were boarding Teferi's response. <laughs> uh, for this. That, that's the card that I constantly want to play just because... Yeah, exactly. For that moment. Oh, got him! Got there! Um, Josh? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the one of the other things I wrote down is, you know, pretty similar to what we were talking about, really, is, you know, a lot of times I'll draw my opening seven and i'll say okay this is my plan this is what i'm gonna do you know i have a force of will whatever the first threat is i'm gonna counter it and then you know i'm not even gonna think about it and then i move on with whatever's in my hand and you know i've had an opponent go cavern of souls goblin lackey and i have force of will bad (laughs) yeah i mean i just i just come up with like this predetermined plan of like here's what i'm gonna do and you just execute. doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. I thought the mistake here was going to be that you don't follow the plan, but you're sticking too hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, playing too quickly, I think that's another thing that, like, is exactly that. I mean, I do that a lot, and I get myself in these stupid spots. And, you know, I, I fail to sometimes react adequately to my opponent changing the game state. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously an extreme example, but... I think if we're if we're looking at mindset sort of things, like I think I have a tendency to bail out of a game in certain situations, and then I don't yeah. get back into it like for the next game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, this this happens a lot when I play against Jeff. Um, <laughs> Notion Thief and Consecrated Sphinx just annoy me to no end. Like I hate playing against those cards, and. <laughs> So there, there have been several times where Jeff will resolve a Notion Thief in game one, and I'm just like, yeah, fine, whatever. I'm already losing this whole match, and I don't care, and, <laughs> and I hate you, <laughs> and, and I never get back into it. And it's a... I never knew you no, cared. It's, it's, de- <laughs> it's definitely that, like, and Notion Thief isn't even as bad as Consecrated Sphinx. Like, if Consecrated yeah. Sphinx hits the board, it's like, I just want to go home. Like, I don't even want to... <laughs> I'm done. I I hate this. (laughs) I actually had a a round at that combo vintage legacy tournament where I felt like I lost. uh, We I won round one and just apparently forgot it, and I lost game two so bad that I was packing up after I lost game two. And he's like, "Uh, "We we have another game game to play." Oh, oh, okay. Uh, I already checked out. Yeah, I've, I've had that happen too, where you, you don't realize there's going to be a game three for in either direction. Like you won game one and lost game two, or lost game two and won game or yeah. And I've, I've had that happen. It's just like, oh, hey, redemption. <laughs> Do we want to talk about any other? I got a real quick one. Okay, please. I got a real quick one. I riffle shuffle my cards. Uh, I riffle shuffle other people's cards. <laughs> I riffle shuffle my cards. I, I'm not. I'm not gonna like brag about my collection, but I definitely have an above average collection. It definitely represents some portion of my net worth. 
Well, I also riffle shuffle my cards, so. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a bad habit. I'm not, yeah. I'm never gonna stop. I'm just too used to it now. I can't, you know. And I, I never riffle shuffle my opponent's deck, but. Oh, thank God, no. But, uh, I definitely riffle shuffle my own deck. That's a, that's a bit too specific bad habit of depending on, like, who's listening to the podcast, they might not get what we're saying at all. <laughs> they might have just no idea uh, what we're talking about. Like, that's just how you shuffle, right? Uh, what does a riffle mean? The, the Riptide Mangler, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's In addition to talking about magic mistakes. Since it's March, and when is St. Patrick's Day? Seventeenth. It's always the seventeenth. <laughs> oh, I, I, this shows how much I pay attention to St. Patrick's Day. It's a drinking holiday, so I wouldn't expect you to be into it. Yeah. So in the in the spirit of green things, we decided we would all talk about our favorite green cards. So who wants to start off? Wait, I, I gotta ask. So we're we gonna do? Everyone does one, and then we have one that's like a group one, or what? I don't think we. Plan that I don't yet. know. This is supposed to be a, a short segment of mirth uh, without any any actual redeeming content. You got it, buddy. Okay. I can start yeah. because I think mine's going to be the most boring. Okay. A lot of time thinking. I just went with Fast Bond. It's boring because it is just like a, a card a lot of people have played. That's funny because we've talked so much lately in the chat with you passionately against Fast Bond. Just like. Hating on fast. Yeah, and, and I made I made a separate list, and I we won't talk about it. Of like the best green cards in vintage, the most powerful green card in vintage. It is not number one on that list. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fairly boring list. Yeah, it just it has been so interesting in the past. It has been worse than it is now. It has definitely been so much better than it is now. There have been times when it was like like Lotus good, like better than Lotus mm-hmm. in, the, in like the four gush decks. You'd much rather have a fast one in your opening hand than Lotus in those decks. And my favorite vintage deck of all time was the Forgush Fast Bond Painter deck from years ago. When I first started Vintage, it was right before Gush got restricted the first time, and the Fast Bond decks were just crushing everyone. I, I wasn't good enough to play them at the time. It's just, uh, I don't know, I love the card. But I don't like it now. I don't think it's good to play now, but... Uh, sure. Fast Bond used to be a lot better when you had, your Gush deck was actually built around playing a bunch of Gushes. I mean, you had Gush and Brainstorm and Merchant Scroll and like, all of those were super with fast bond in play because they just led to you playing gush. Yeah, you were more likely to play the fast bond, and you were way more likely to just draw four gushes right after you played it. Not quite the same anymore. Still not bad. I mean, there are, there are fast bond decks now that are okay, uh, but it's not right. like format dominant like it once was. Nat, then, what is your favorite green oh, card? Oh, next. Um, well, mine obviously is channel. <laughs> That's what I figured. Yeah. So, th- I mean, channel. I've had some. I mean, I played Belcher for. Like four years straight, like that was the only deck I played. And obviously I've had some pretty good experiences with channel and then, you know, turn one Lotus channel Belcher, turn one Lotus channel memory jar, double Belcher, like those are all good. I've used channel to play through my opponent's Trinospheres. That's definitely a good one. You've used it against Twan P. Ponertown oh. <laughs> to great effect. So yeah, Twan will love that I tell this story. I, actually, it may have come up <laughs> in, in the uh, episode he was on, but we were playing a cube draft emperor game. Twan and I were both lieutenants facing against each other. My deck had 
it was basically a combo deck. I had drafted black green combo based on channel and in two games in a row, I managed to set up channel dark steel Colossus on turns two and three. <laughs> he was so demoralized by that, that channel is gross in cube. Yeah. Like he, he, he had to stand up from the table and walk outside and take a little breather <laughs> and like <laughs> I felt bad and had to go out and check on him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Channel's cool. Yeah, it's it's good times. I it, people talk about cutting it from Belcher. I'm just like, no, you can't you can't cut channel if you're playing green cards and especially Elvish Spirit card. Like it's just it's a card that has to be in there because it just outright wins games. It's basically like the best mana turnaround right. oh, yeah, yeah. in the game. It's like two green makes, for nineteen colorless mana. Foolish to like yeah. three mana. Oh alright. Right. Kick <laughs> ever cool with that. <laughs> I think it's just so, I mean, Channel has been pretty much in vintage, just limited to Belcher and uh, maybe some weird fringe combo decks for... Well, for it, years it wasn't that the, what, show and, show and tell Emrakul yeah. deck, right? Because you, yeah, yeah. you could play Emrakul and get the free turn. <laughs> but I love that, like, it's it's the first combo card ever. Yeah, right. Right, like, this Channel Fireball, it's, yeah. it's the name of a card shop, but it's, it's just point. the first combo ever. Right. Way, mm-hmm. way before they had ever printed a storm card and anything like that made any sense. Yeah. Way before it was even good to play six spells in a turn. Like, Channel Fireball was like, oh, you can play the game that everybody else is playing, but you could also, like, do things with these cards. You could also play this <laughs> different game. A little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> just, just do what the cards say and, oh, you only have 20 life? Funny, I have 19. <laughs> Someday they'll, uh, someday they'll unrestrict it. Someday. <laughs> they might. I don't know it's how long it will last, day. but they might. Josh? So, I, I thought about, I think my green card is probably going to be the most boring, because I thought a lot about green cards. Um, <laughs> there aren't really that many that see a lot of play in Vintage, and then I personally took the list as my favorite green card, and not necessarily the best green card. That's entirely whatever. up to your interpretation, so you can do whatever you want. My favorite green <laughs> card is probably Cross and Grip. Nice. All right. Uh, Ooh. You know, it kills Fast Bond. <laughs> True. I can't argue with that. I, re- I really like Split Second as a mechanic because it ruins people's days the most. <laughs> like, you, know, I've, you know, I've got this, I've got, you know, my Time Vault, and I've got a bunch of counters and Cross and Grip totally changes their game plan. I mean, it's not as exciting anymore because Abrupt Decay is a card and probably maybe better, but yeah. it's just... Crossing There's Grip has a... you can do with Crossing Grip that you can't do with Abrupt Decay. Not just big right. cards, but like, just... Sure. They can't respond to it. They can, you can kill an untapped Time Vault, which I've never done, but that, that's got to feel great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how often that happens, but you could do some stuff with it. Yeah, so not super exciting removal spell, but, you know, split second puts it over the edge for me. I have to respect that choice. I don't like the choice, but I have to respect it because Crows and Grip uh, did cost me the finals of a GP. <laughs> the, nice. The highest stakes game of Magic I've ever played in my entire life. I lost to a Crows and Grip. Oh, so. what was got Crows and Grip? A counterbalance. It was, oh. I want a soapbox, but... Gabriel Nassif drew a card on his upkeep faster than I expect him to, expected him to, not giving me the chance to play a Crozen Grip. It was my fault for not saying, hey, stop, don't draw that card. Uh, <laughs> but he did, so. Oh, okay. Uh, did your Crozen Grip all... get countered from a counterbalance trigger? 
Because that would be sweet. That was what happened, actually. (laughs) So we're both playing Counterbalance, and we're both playing Crows and Grips. I know he has a three-drop somewhere in the top three cards of his deck, but I don't know which of those three there are. So it's this mind game of he's going to shuffle his cards on his upkeep, and then he's going to draw a card. Is he going to put a three-drop on top expecting me to grip him, or put the two-drop on top with a three-drop underneath expecting me to wait until he draws to grip him? I needed the latter. Yeah. I timed it wrong. I actually guessed right, but I did not say... I'm going to cruise and grip you fast enough and uh, hmm. lost the GP. This goes back to your early mistake of being too nice of a guy when you're playing. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I was nice to him, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe I didn't, wasn't aggressive enough. That's fine. I mean, I think that was game two. I'm not saying I would have won game three. Uh, yeah. I don't want to say, but cruise and grip is a, it's a very emotional card for me, but it is a very good one. It's a very powerful card. All right, Jeff, lay it on us. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think of an actual reasonable card, but, I couldn't think of any that I actually have attachment to other than Thalid <laughs> because I am, of course, the Thalid tosser. And, and Andy was like, do you think that you can actually talk about Thalid? And, and man, I can talk about Thalid. <laughs> I've lost so many games. As long as you want to talk about Thalid. There's actually an article out there singing the praises of Thalid. I think it came out around Time Spiral. And the, uh, Thalid the, was reprinted in Time Spiral. It was one of the, yeah, and, and it got a whole lot more support, and the the basic idea was like, yeah, Thalids were terrible in Fallen Empires because they were really slow, but with the updated versions, basically, and that were printed in Time Spiral, they actually made a pretty decent deck. It was a little bit slower, but they could move a lot faster because the actual, the, the creatures themselves are just better. Thalid itself, as a one-drop creature was tied for the fastest 20 to nothing life if nothing else happens in the game <laughs> with Rogue Elephant. Rogue Elephant beats it, but Thalid, because it creates more 1-1s, actually win wins over time. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's changed a lot now. So, because, so, like, so to clarify, this is if you, if you play a Thalid on turn one, then your opponent mm-hmm. plays any other one drop in the game turn one, you will win the game. If you play a Thalid on turn one and your opponent does nothing the entire game. That's what I'm saying, yeah. If, if, if both players just have a single one drop and that's their whole deck. The Thalid basically will kill faster because it will do one, 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 two, 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 three, 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 I think. No, maybe the second three. And it actually, I think, ends up, uh, maybe it ties two twos. I don't remember. <laughs> Anyway, basically, as a 1-1 for 1, Thalid is actually a pretty good creature and was pretty good even in Time Spiral as a decent creature. It might die, in which case you get nothing out of it, but if the game lasts any number of turns, it's definitely going to pay for itself and do well. Especially, I mean, if you actually are playing a Thalid deck, which is where I got my name because that's what I did, Back in casual magic days, you get a lot of value out of saprolings. You can do fun stuff with them, and it's it's fun. Well, the the biggest thing you can do with them, in my experience, is just sit behind them like a little green wall. <laughs> it's true. And it's so true, man. We used to. I like, remember, I was I was on the other side playing congregate, <laughs> sitting behind that. <laughs> yeah, and then we would like alpha strike, and it was like fog. And then Alpha Strike, fog back. Yeah. Oh, man. We were really And then bad. at some point, like, we got to this competitive part, and, <laughs> like, everything changed. We would never play Thalid again. 
No, no. It's just like, oh, I'm going to play Thalid. I'm going to play Rogue Elephant and then Harvest Worm. Get wrecked. I was going to make fun of you in some way for naming yourself Thalid Tosser after playing Thalids in a deck. And then I remembered that people call me Brass Man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I didn't actually make the Thalid Tosser account. When we uh, first started recording the show, I don't know if it was... Nat or someone else yeah. just made the account and was and gave me the password and they're like Jeff this, <laughs> this is a Twitter is account. Now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. So I like that uh, we, we went through green cards and vintage and nobody mentioned oath and nobody mentioned Tarmogoyf. Nobody well, mentioned. We're talking about cards that we like. Yeah, I'm really happy about yeah, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I think oath is probably one of the best green cards if you're being honest, but that's not why we're here. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, if uh, Tarmogoyf is one of my favorite cards that I've played in Legacy, but it doesn't have that same appeal as Vintage. I don't like Tarmogoyf at all. <laughs> I feel like Tarmogoyf is the most boring card ever. Well, I mean, it used to be, I don't know. It's like, here's a big dude, I'm going to hit you with it. Hey. You no, I've won some games with Tarmogoyf. I felt pretty good about it. I really liked, <laughs> when, when Tarmogoyf was first printed, it was... In Vintage, still, I, I played it in Vintage decks as, like, a cyborg card yeah. against aggro and shops. Because shops didn't have five threes, and the aggro decks were sure. all twos. And you had this, like, transformational cyborg. You're just like, I'm just going to board in three cards. And suddenly I'm a better aggro deck than you are. Yeah. I, I had them in the board of Belcher yeah. for a long time. Yeah, but you can't do that anymore because their creatures are better than Charmoglyphs. I can do what I want. Yeah. You're right. It's not, it doesn't do too much. It's, it's just a creature. It doesn't, it doesn't like generate another Tarmogoyf every three turns. Yeah, it should. Ah, oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> It'd be a little better if it did that. <laughs> Tarmothalid. <laughs> Tarmotosser. <laughs> well, in, in light of the now missing food and or drink section, I would like to recommend Great Lakes Brewing Company's Conway's Irish Ale as a refreshing beverage on your St. Patrick's Day. All right. Thank you for that, Eat some corned beef and cabbage, I guess. See, Matt actually has – he's sponsored for the podcast. Oh, man. We're We're sponsored? No, no. Matt is. Yeah, Matt is. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Great Great Lakes Brewing Company has uh, paid me to say these words. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Red breast. <laughs> I, I recommend Red Breast to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. All right. All right. They don't give me anything. It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Matt Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Andy Pabasco. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip to see. This is dangerous. The longer this takes, the more beers I opened.